hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Tuesday, December the 8th, 1835, Kirtland, Ohio. Joseph Smith the prophet preached as usual in a meeting to his brethren of the priesthood. He would describe the meeting had, quote, he had great liberty in speaking. The congregation, he said, was attentive. Well, at the close of the services, Leonard Rich suggested that the brethren present gather firewood for the prophet and his family for winter. Two days later, on a beautiful winter morning, the brethren came together to chop and haul wood for the prophet and his wife, Emma. In his history, Joseph recorded this, quote, They have also been very industrious and supplied me with my winter's wood for which I am sincerely grateful to each and every one of them, and shall remember with warm emotions this winter's wood by the brethren, and the expression of their goodness to me. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I invoke the rich benediction of heaven to rest upon them and their families. And I ask my heavenly Father to preserve their health and those of their wives and children, that they may have strength of body to perform their labors in the several occupations in life, and the use and activity of their limbs, also powers of intellect and understanding hearts, that they may treasure up wisdom, understanding, and intelligence above measure, and be preserved from plagues, pestilence, and famine, and from the power of the adversary, and the hands of evil designing men, and have power over all their enemies, and the way be prepared for them, that they may journey to the land of Zion, and be established on their inheritances, to enjoy undisturbed peace and happiness forever, and be crowned with everlasting life in the celestial kingdom of God which blessings I ask in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, end of quote. Oh, my word. Such a blessing, such gratitude for what? Chopping wood for a man of God. And of the man who first suggested that service project for the elders, Leonard Rich, Joseph said, quote, I would remember Elder Leonard Rich, who was the first one that proposed to the brethren to assist me in obtaining wood for the use of my family, for which I pray my Heavenly Father to bless him with all the blessings named above, and I shall ever remember him with much gratitude for this testimony of benevolence and respect, and thank the great I Am for putting it into his heart to do me this kindness. And I say in my heart, I will trust in thy goodness and mercy forever. 
end of quote. Say what you want about Joseph Smith, the man. But that, my friends, is gratitude on a godly scale. And for what? Hauling wood. Oh, that we could all have that kind of gratitude now that Thanksgiving is past. All right, next story. I'm going to be paraphrasing President M. Russell Ballard, the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He's speaking of his grandfather, Melvin J. Ballard, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve back in the 30s. He describes how Elder Ballard died when he was just 10 years old. But the first Elder Ballard was a major influence in M. Russell Ballard's life because he said, for as long as I can remember, I've heard my family talk about his love for the Lord and his unwavering devotion to the church. He spent his entire life building on the sure foundation of which Helaman spoke. And I'm not aware of any shafts in the whirlwind that were able to penetrate his faith and testimony. In fact, Elder Ballard said, my personal quest for knowledge of the Savior was motivated to a great degree by my grandfather Ballard's account of one of of his most sacred experiences. And then he goes on to describe how Melvin J. Ballard was serving as a mission president up in Montana in the Northwest, and that he had found some incredible problems, very difficult circumstances, and they had no precedence to rely on. In fact, they were seemingly insurmountable challenges for the church there. And Elder Ballard says, my grandfather literally spent hours on his knees asking for guidance and inspiration. And he said, during one such period when all seemed bleak and utterly hopeless, grandfather received, in his words, a wonderful manifestation and impression which has never left me. Now, what was that wonderful manifestation and impression? Well, Elder Ballard received a dream. Now, later on, a few months later, he would relate that dream to the assembled brethren of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency in Salt Lake. He related the dream as follows, quote, I was told there was a great privilege that was to be mine. I was led into a room where I was informed I was to meet someone. As I entered the room, I saw, seated on a raised platform, the most glorious being I have ever conceived of and was taken forward to be introduced to him. As I approached, He smiled, called me by name, and stretched out his hands toward me. If I live to be a million years old, I shall never forget that smile. He put his arms around me and kissed me as he took me into his bosom, and he blessed me until my whole being was thrilled. As he finished, I fell at his feet and there saw the marks of the nails. And as I kissed them, 
with deep joy swelling through my whole being. I felt that I was in heaven indeed. The feeling that came to my heart then was, oh, if I could live worthy, though it would require fourscore years, so that in the end, when I have finished, I could go into his presence and receive the feeling that I then had in his presence, I would give everything that I am and ever hope to be, end of quote. And then Elder Ballard concluded by saying, I know, as I know that I live, that he lives. That is my testimony, end of quote. Well, Elder Ballard says that experience infused my grandfather with the comfort, determination, and spiritual energy he needed to deal with the problems he was encountering on his mission. In fact, it was the very next day after that manifestation that he was with one of his fellow missionaries, W. Leo Iskren, in visiting a well-to-do merchant in Helena, Montana. Now, some years later, Brother Iskren told me, M. Russell Ballard, how he and my grandfather had stood together in front of a life-size portrait of Jesus Christ that was prominently displayed in the merchant's home. At length, grandfather turned to Brother Iskren and said, No, that isn't him. The artist has made a fair representation of him, but that isn't him. Brother Iskin said, I was filled so much with the sacred feeling that I could say nothing. He continued, After we left the home and were on our way to our next appointment, Brother Ballard stopped me and said, Brother Iskren, I suppose you were somewhat startled at my words regarding the Savior of the world. I told him that, yes, indeed, I had been very much so. And then and there, firsthand, he told me of his experience the previous evening. End of quote. And then Elder M. Russell Ballard concluded, while we may not all have experiences of the same magnitude or intensity, the essence of our ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to invite all people everywhere to come unto Christ so that he can work his miracle in their lives in whatever way he chooses. For some, that miracle will mean a significant change of life and lifestyle. For others, it will simply mean new purpose and understanding in lives that are already rich with faith. But for all, it will mean peace, joy, and happiness beyond measure as the Master touches hearts and souls with his love. End of quote. Now, I was a little nervous in sharing that story with you because it is so sacred, but it has been printed and it has been published many times. And I've heard Elder Ballard speak of it in conference, as have you. But I shared it with you tonight because at the beginning of this Christmas season, please know that there are those who know of a certainty, of a surety, that Jesus is the living Savior. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. 
He's not even a figure of history. He's real. He's here now and present. And that when you go forward into Christmas now, into this most blessed season of the year, please do so with the idea in mind that we're not celebrating someone of a long distant past. We're celebrating someone here now in a powerful present. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Next story. More than 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of Jerusalem were frightened. Their peace was being threatened by political alliances, by a ruthless power from the north called Assyria, who was systematically taking over country after country, moving south toward Judah. Judah's neighbors, Ephraim and Syria to the north, were hastily forming political alliances to guard against the threat of Assyria. Judah's king, however, Ahaz, refused to join that alliance, choosing instead to bargain with Assyria directly for his nation's safety. Well, that angered the kings of Ephraim and Samaria, or Syria, and they were so angered that Ahaz and Judah would not join them, that they promised to invade Judah and remove Ahaz as king. Well, that had shook up all of Judah. All of Jerusalem was nervous, on edge, wars and rumors of wars, that kind of thing, such that Isaiah the prophet came forthwith to Ahaz and met him near the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. I've been there. I know where he's talking about, near Hezekiah's tunnel, the top of it. Well, Isaiah came and told Ahaz not to fear. Don't worry about these two allied kings, these smoking firebrands, as it were. Their fire's gone out. Don't listen to them. Be at peace and trust the Lord. Well. The imminent political threat, though, was too much for Ahaz. In his heart, he just couldn't believe Isaiah's promises. I mean, how, how could he? The doom of Judah seemed sure and certain in spite of Isaiah's promises. Knowing that, Ahaz's weakness of faith, he said to Ahaz, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, you know as well as I do that to seek signs of God, of ourselves, is evil. An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, that sort of thing. But when the Lord commands us to ask for a sign, it is evil and stupid not to. Moreover, to be told that his sign can come from the depths of hell or the heights of heaven, whatever he wants, must mean that God is very determined that this doubting king believe his promises. <laughs> Stubbornly, Ahaz refused to ask for the sign, I will not tempt the Lord my God. Well, at that point, Isaiah was disgusted with him and the whole nation of Judah and said, 
that the Lord would give him a sign anyway. Quote, Behold, he said, now addressing himself to Ahaz and all the nation, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Wait a minute. A virgin bearing a son? Moreover, that that virgin birth would not happen for another 700 years? But again, a virgin bearing a son? That's impossible. Yet that's exactly what God did on that first Christmas. He did the impossible when Jesus was born. But Ahaz would not live to see the sign fulfilled, you say. You see. So why tell him? Christ would not be born for another 700 years. So why was the sign given to Ahaz at this critical moment? Because this was not just a sign to Ahaz and Judea, but to all the children of God in all ages that doubt him and his promises. Because, my friends, every Christmas is a reminder that God did once and can do again the impossible. Any of you listening to me that are troubled for any reason and seek peace need only look at the miracle of Christmas to awaken your latent faith. Don't let doubt determine your future. This is ironically for us here, the season of the coldest weather and yet for a time, the season of the warmest hearts. When Christmas comes, God is with us again in our hearts, our homes, and even our music. One need only look how our world changes at this time of year to know that Christ is still in Christmas. Indeed, Christmas is an everlasting sign to a doubting world that God is still with us, still loves us, and can still do the impossible. This time, even for you, for me, and I wait to see, and my prayer is fervent, that this Christmas season, our nation will calm the violence, the hate, the rhetoric, all of the contention, the bickering. I pray, God, that it will stop, at least for the Christmas season. Next story. Philip graduated from Harvard University at the age of 19 and accepted employment as a schoolteacher in the Boston Latin School in September of 1855. This would be the first step in his lofty life goal of becoming a professor, a professional educator. Shortly after accepting his position, he wrote to a friend and said, quote, Seriously, I like the life. Isn't there a sort of satisfaction and pleasure in knowing that you are doing, or at least have the chance of doing something? At Cambridge, 
It was all very well, but we had only ourselves to work on. Here, we have some 20, 30, or 40 on whom we can bring to bear the authority and influence of a superior position and see what we can make out of them and watch all their workings, end of quote. Well, Philip taught Greek, Latin, and French, and all went well for the fall semester. But then at the opening of the winter term, he was transferred to a class of older boys, and immediately things began to go awry. This class of boys had already driven to resignation two previous teachers. It would seem that his students did not like Philip and immediately began to rebel. Quote, he said, they are the most disagreeable set of creatures without exception I have ever met with. End of quote. I taught some sophomores back in my career that were something like that. Well, as expected, it took a terrible toll on Philip. I am tired, sick, cross, and almost dead, he said. Well, the situation came to a head by February 1856, and Philip Brooks was forced to resign. A failure. He is reported to have said, quote, I do not know what will become of me, and I do not care much. I wish I were 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or other, I do not seem in the way to come to much now. End of quote. Can you hear it? This is a man discouraged. This is a man who now must reinvent himself. It was a very depressing and dark time for Philip. Humiliated and inconsolable, he wandered the streets of Boston. There was no one he could unburden his heart to. Did he even comprehend the burden himself? One biographer wrote of him, quote, The failure of Philip Brooks on the threshold of life was conspicuous and complete, momentous also, and, it may be said in view of his later career, providential, end of quote, a providential failure. Philip awoke at that point to his heritage. He was the son and grandson of generations of famous clergymen, and now the faith of his fathers became his. Born anew, indeed born again, he set a course to study for the ministry. He entered the seminary and prepared to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. He graduated in 1859 and was ordained a deacon. In 1860, he was ordained a priest and by 1869 was called to serve in Boston's Church of the Holy Trinity. One writer said of the life legacy of Philip Brooks, quote, Brooks quickly became Boston's first citizen. Knowing the sheer adulation of the worshipers who regularly packed Trinity to hear his compelling sermons and to view his serene yet radiant presence, his fame spread. In the entire annals of the Episcopal Church, the power of his preaching is unmatched. 
invitation after invitation to preach came his way, as did honorary degrees from the nation's leading universities and England's Oxford. Greatly admired abroad, he was an inveterate world traveler. He was the first American to preach in the Royal Chapel at Windsor. In 1891, he was elected Bishop of Massachusetts, the culmination of a life of nobility. His unexpected death in 1893 caused Lord Bryce to observe that not since Lincoln's assassination had America so widely mourned the loss of a leader. End of quote. Now today, I suspect that a great number of us have never heard the voice of Philip Brooks preaching in his powerful, humble, and charismatic way. Yet, every one of you have heard and even sung one of Philip Brooks' greatest sermons. In 1865, at Christmas time, Philip Brooks rode horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, where he assisted with the midnight services on Christmas Eve at the Church of the Nativity. He would later write of that moment, quote, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God, how again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. End of quote. Well, this sacred experience in Bethlehem awakened in Philip Brooks the desire to write his own hymn of praise to commemorate that holy night, something that would contribute to the spirit of that sacred place and event. Lewis Redner, a friend of Brooks, said, quote, As Christmas of 1868 approached, Mr. Brooks told me that he had written a simple little carol for the Christmas Sunday school service and he asked me to write the tune to it. The simple music was written in great haste and under great pressure. We were to practice it on the following Sunday. Mr. Brooks came to me on Friday and said, Redner, have you ground out that music yet? I replied, no, but that he should have it by Sunday. On the Saturday night previous, Redner said, my brain was all confused about the tune. I thought more about my Sunday school lesson than I did about the music, but I was roused from sleep late in the night, hearing an angel strain whispering in my ear. And seizing a piece of music paper, I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it, and on Sunday morning before going to church, I filled in the harmony. Neither Mr. Brooks nor I ever thought the carol or the music to it would live beyond that Christmas of 1868. End of quote. That enduring Christmas carol, that lasting and most 
famous sermon ever by Reverend Philip Brooks, The Providential Failure, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.